Hello and welcome back to another episode of Talking Terror, brought to you by the Terrorism and Extremism Research Centre here at the University of East London. I'm John Morrison. Today's episode was recorded at about 2pm on the 10th of January 2018 London time. As always, if you want to get any further details about anything we do here at Turk, be sure to check out our website, uel.ac.uk slash T-E-R-C. Follow us on Twitter by following at T-E-R-C-U-E-L. And tell us what you think about the podcast by tweeting at us with the hashtag TalkingTerror. It's my great pleasure to welcome on today's pod, Dr. Noemi Buhana uh, from the University College London. Noemi is a senior lecturer in security and crime sciences at UCL, where she leads the Counterterrorism Research Group and convenes the MSc in Countering Organised Crime and Terrorism. She holds a BA in Political Studies from the Institut d'Etudes Politiques of Lyon, pardon my lack of a French accent there, my poor pronunciation, an MA in Political Science from Université Jean Moulin, Lyon uh, III, and an MPhil and PhD in Criminology from the University of Cambridge. Most recently, Noemi led the 2.9 million euro EU FP7 Prime project, more of which we'll discuss later, which is an international multidisciplinary study on lone actor radicalization and attack behavior. At present, she is principal investigator of the $1 million comparative study, The Social Ecology of Radicalization, funded by the US DOD Minerva Initiative. She's also a co-investigator on large grants funded by the EU Horizon 2020 and CREST. Previous research was funded by DSTL, Home Office OSCT, MOD, Counterterrorism Science and Technology Centre, uh, ESRC and NIJ. On the fundamental side, Noemi's work is concerned with the social ecological processes involved in the emergence and maintenance of radicalizing settings, the where of radicalization as opposed to the why, the role that these settings play through mechanisms of selection and exposure in the development of an individual propensity for terrorism, as well as the mechanisms which underpin individual vulnerability to moral change. On the applied side, she's interested in the development of risk analysis instruments, which go beyond reliance on unstable risk factors and indicators. Her approach to the study of terrorism is influenced chiefly by criminological and epidemiological and systematic thinking, which is reflected in the research that most influenced her to date. Noemi, thanks so much for being on the pod. Very happy to be here. So, how did you get involved in this area of research? Um, if we go f back far enough, it's probably because I watch too much TV, but... <laughs> But no, if I think about my higher education, um, so I first trained in political science in France, which is quite a different beast from political science in Anglo-Saxon countries, but we won't go into that. <laughs> um, but um, at some point I did uh, uh, the equivalent of an MA, I guess is the closest equivalent uh, in political science. Um, and, uh, and I had to write a, uh, an MA thesis dissertation uh, and I was shopping around for a topic and it was, and now I'm going to give away my age, sort of, um, let's say the mid-90s, right? Um, and at the time, there was um, this sort of phenomena of what was called the right-wing militia movement in the US. I'm sure you, you're familiar with it. Um, and I thought, well, that sounds really interesting. And, you know, you had had Waco and Ridge and those kinds of incidents. Um, and that was political violence, so it fell under under um, sort of the umbrella of political science. And I thought I'd like to write something on, on that. Uh, and I wasn't quite sure why. Um, 
what to what to focus what what aspect you know because it's quite broad uh, movement um and at the same time i was lucky enough to be in a university in france that was sort of a, a pilot university for free access to the internet uh, to students which in the mid 90s especially in france was not i think we're talking what 96 97 um wasn't particularly common yeah. Uh, and I discovered the internet and everything was in English on it. <laughs> so it forced me to improve my English quite a lot um, to understand what I was uh, reading and access this particular tool. Uh, and also I realized that the militia movement was quite active on the internet. Uh, and they had websites and forums and this should all sound familiar to people who are studying, you know, the social media aspect of terrorism uh, uh, now, but it was already the case back then. Uh, and I thought that would be quite interesting to to study. And and they were, without going into boring details, they were um, kind of um, spreading the ideology on the internet by reinterpreting quite loosely uh, key thinkers from the Enlightenment. Uh, and so I basically um, did an analysis of how they were misusing <laughs> Enlightenment thinkers to propagate their ideology. Um, all my primary sources were in English. Uh, and uh, my uh, the professors who were examining my thesis, uh, one did not speak English, um, two, um, uh, I had a clue what the militia movement and or the internet was at the time, so I got a really good mark <laughs> <laughs> because I guess it sounded a lot cooler than it was. But um, yeah, I, that's, that's how I, I got into it. Um, and then I went, uh, I, I was, I went to the U.S. Um, for a year, mostly to per perfect my English, was was quite poor at the time, um, and uh, I, my English wasn't good enough to 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 study at one of the big universities yet at that point. So I went to a small college and took a bunch of classes um, that I thought would motivate me to learn the language, uh, including criminology, which does not exist as a discipline in France. It's not it's not a university level discipline, at least not as we know it here in in say in England or um, or in the U the US. Uh, and I really, really liked it. Um, so I thought, well, I want to continue and, and study that some more. And, and I applied to Cambridge uh, and I got into the master's program and then uh, was offered a place on the PhD program. But at that point, I wasn't studying terrorism anymore. I was studying uh, offender profiling. Okay. So in the first instance, I thought, as every starting student thinks, that I was going to revo revolutionize the technique, uh, you know, and I had watched Science of the Lens one too many times um, and ended up writing 300 pages on why profiling doesn't work, <laughs> you know. So having having shot myself in the foot by writing a thesis saying what I've spent the last few years studying actually doesn't work, um, I kind of had to, to, to decide if I was going to stay in academia I wasn't going to keep studying profiling. So frankly, I, I thought it quite boring after three years on it. Um, but um, I I um, had the opportunity, I can't remember, sorry, I can't remember exactly in what circumstances, but to think about terrorism again. Um, and, and it occurred to me that a lot of the, the, the questions that were raised in the, uh, at the time, um, uh, in the, the literature on terrorism were questions that had been raised in criminology 20 years ago, which obviously I didn't know when I first studied political violence, but then having done criminology for four or five years, suddenly I realized that there were other people in some other discipline I didn't even know existed who had spent some time thinking about stuff that could be quite useful. 
Um, and and then when I so when I applied for my first job, which is this job, I'm still in my first job, um, um, and they were looking for someone to develop a, a terrorism orientated research group um, and um, and a, a master's program. Um, I decided to bring both those things together: um, the the political violence or terrorism aspect and the criminology aspect. And to this day, that's still what what I do. So when people say, you know. Um, address me as a terrorism expert or introduce me somewhere. I, I feel a little odd because I, I feel more like a criminologist who happens to be studying terrorism. But if you ask me very you know, specific questions about particular terrorist campaigns or terrorist groups, I'm afraid I'm going to have to embarrass myself <laughs> because I, I don't have, I didn't really study it. So I don't really have the specific knowledge i just happen to be someone who's applying a certain discipline to this particular problem don't worry i won't ask you those <laughs> kind of questions but I, I'm, I'm really interested in that that origin back in france then when you were looking at these forums on the internet and looking at how these right-wing militias were using the internet and obviously in your in your research at ucl and um, on all these projects that we mentioned in the introduction you will have uh, come across the far right and other groups and other um, ideological use of the internet. How has that, like obviously the forums have changed significantly, yeah. but the content of what they're saying, has that changed significantly? I, I, don't, I don't think so really. Um, um, but I'm not specializing on the internet yeah. side of things anymore. Yeah. So of course I keep up with, you know, the the, the stuff that I, I'm part of the Vox Poll mm. project, at least a peripheral part, but you know, I, I, I keep up with what's coming out of that. I feel mostly the um the tools, the structure of communication has I mean, you didn't have this amount of people on the internet yeah. back when I was first starting, you know. Um and it was a very different population. I think probably 80% of the internet population were academics and or students because they were the people who had access to the network. Yeah. Back then, you mostly had to be in a library or a university to have access to it or be a government person or, yeah. you know, be a military person or someone like that or a scientist of yeah. some kind. Um, so, so the population was, it was not quite as democratic as it is now. Yeah. Um, but that's that's what in, is, is interesting as well because it kind of shows... Uh, uh, from the perspectives of, of one of those things I'm particularly interested in, which is selection processes, mm-hmm. um, that uh, that uh, where the communication happens sort of decides who's going to be exposed and who might, you know, end up being involved. Mm-hmm. And during that time, then, obviously, you've, you've got that, that varied background, as you were talking about, and you go over to the States and you're introduced to criminology. Um, and was it there that that you started reading in depth and they that you came across these pieces that we're going to talk about now which influenced you or was it in your time that was in it that was in Cambridge so yeah. what were what were these influential influential pieces for you well um, I have to be honest uh, uh, my my supervisor at the time in Cambridge uh, when I was doing my PhD was quite remains quite an influence and is is one of my co-author i've dragged him into the, the terrorism area with me um kicking um, and screaming kick, no 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 actually he's quite open-minded uh, we're talking about um peril of bigstrom uh who's professor uh at at cambridge um and uh and i guess it was a, a, an interesting situation where he was um 
formalizing at the time I was a student he was formalizing a theory that he is now quite uh, prominently um, uh, being written about which is situational action theory back then it wasn't called that uh, back then we were mostly interested in um, the the situation person interaction um, in terms of producing criminal behavior um, and so we had those discussions because when I was writing on profiling what quickly became apparent to me uh, uh, so like I said in the beginning I went in being very naive and having this this sort of romantic idea of what profiling was and how it was going to work and intuitively it seemed that it should work it yeah. seemed that you should be able to look at the product of behavior and be able to come up with some idea as to who done it yeah. uh, but then as you start thinking formally about it thinking about okay but what are the mechanisms that makes that make this possible, you realize that what's missing in the profiling process is that uh, in the equation, the situation isn't taken into account. Uh, mostly because it's actually very hard to guess what the situation was at the moment that the action was taken, right? So you, you don't really have, you may have traces of the acts that were, you know, produced by the person, but what was the situation at the time? So let's say, you know, you know, they went through the front door, but did they go through the front door because they had planned to go through the front door or maybe they had planned to go through the back door, but there was a dog at the, in the garden. So they decided to go around, you know, that's sort of, that's very basic example, but that sort of stuff, sure. you're basically making inferences on incomplete information. Uh, and what's missing is the consideration of the situation. And it's very hard to take into account. And that has become a threat throughout everything that I've done. And that has led me to be particularly interested in the side of criminology that is interested in the environment. Um, so less on, on, on the person. And so I'm not, you know, psychology. Oh, I'm gonna, not going to make any friends if I say that, <laughs> but I, I'm not a big, you know, I'm not terribly excited by psychology. Fair enough. <laughs> um, not um, everyone is. Um, and, and sociology I find more interesting, but it's lacking at least at you know, especially the sociology I was exposed to uh, as a as a as a beginner political science student in France is very uh, very abstract sociology or uh, um, very group orientated sociology, but very little on place. Mm -hmm. uh, and when you think about what you get up to every day, and you know, humans are humans, so it's the same for terrorism for terrorists as it is and criminals as it is for everyone else. Place has a huge influence on on who you become and what you end up doing. Um, so, so on the one side, I was very interested in this, in this um, criminology, the, uh, uh, the social ecology of crime, uh, the, the influence of the environment, if you like, on becoming a criminal, um, on developing a, a propensity to see crime as something that you could do. Uh, and then the more situational aspect, which is the more immediate influence of the situation on the behavior. Um, and I, as I got interested in, in terrorism, I focused more on the first one. Uh, so that's why I ended up more on the radicalization side of things. And so I'm more interested in the in the the development whereby someone comes to see terrorism as a plausible uh, alternative for action. Okay. And like when you're talking about the the influence that your supervisors has, the book that you've put forward here is the the explanation of crime context mechanisms and development. Yeah. Um, but you're not only when you're talking about what influenced you, you've moved away as well um, from what we would see as, okay, yeah, the links with criminology, but you're also, we also see in your research links with epidemiology as well. Yeah, yeah. but it, it, I mean, what is, I'm, um, 
I I read a lot outside my discipline. Yeah. Uh, and when you do that, uh, you 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 realize that people are having the same conversations again and again and again. And uh, and in a sense, my my exposure to epidemiology because. I, I never, you know, I'm not a scientist by training, so I was not particularly exposed to to any of that while I was studying. Um, has come through criminology as well, because yes. criminology has looked to epidemiology and public health as a source of inspiration for what they do, and so on and so forth. Yes. So you you get this kind of filiation uh, of influence through the disciplines, uh, and then you have some feedback loops uh, sometimes because you have some discussion on. Um, the, the, the limitations of, of risk factors, for example, uh, in criminology that then echo back to epidemiology and so on and so forth. Um, so I'm, a, I'm an inherently lazy person, you know, so um, um, I, uh, I, I like to look at what other great ideas people have had and then steal them and then, you know, apply them to, to, to something new. Well, what's the point in reinventing the wheel? Yeah, yeah maybe. Already done? Yeah. And when we're talking about uh, epidemiology, we're talking... Uh, the, the piece that you've put forward is the Galea, Riddle and Kaplan piece, Casual Thinking and Complex System Approaches in Epidemiology. What was it specifically from that piece that you got? Well, okay, so, well, you know how it is in the, uh, the when you asked for three, yeah. three pieces of, of reading, I realized none of them are actually about terrorism uh, after I, sa- I, after I send them to you. After I send them to you. Um, um, I, I picked them not almost less for what they were on their own as to as there are kind of flags for whole areas that yeah. I have found influential because I find it really hard to narrow it down to one paper. Um, but this one, this one, this particular paper talks about uh, uh, from the perspective. So they, they take the example of obesity uh, in, in from an epidemiological perspective. Uh, and they if you read the paper, they talk about a whole lot of things where if you draw a line across obesity and write terrorism instead or, or crime or anything, you would be talking about, about the same sort of thing. So it's about, you know, how do you model complexity? Um, and, and the fact that we have a tendency to fall back on statistical approach, like, you know, regression, looking at for correlation this sort of thing uh, and but when you think then about taking that knowledge to inform intervention you realize that you're acting in a in a complex social system and that that the statistical approach you've, t- you've taken this far isn't quite up to snuff in terms of you know informing your understanding of a very complex problem um so so what i like about this paper is that like a lot of papers i read um i'm i I read uh, nature human behavior regularly uh and i i kid you not eight out of ten common paper i could just like i said just draw a line across whatever the topic is put terrorism instead and it would be exactly the same paper more or less um so so i in the influential papers, it's mostly things that that um, that have really informed my thinking on on causality. How do you think about causality? Um, I think we, we shy away from using the word causes in in terrorism uh, in terrorism studies or radicalization studies. The the whole field really, uh, and we don't really discuss epistemology and those and i used to teach um um 
philosophy of science. Okay. So I really care about this sort of stuff, yeah. ontology and epistemology. And I, I think it's it's very hard to reason systematically about anything uh, if you haven't done that work first, uh, which makes me in a, in a way a, a very theory person, but in the sense of there's nothing as practical as a good theory kind of sense. Uh, I think if you don't get that part right, then the foundations of whatever you do then just fall down. Um, so you can have like a, a really amazing piece of analysis with a, a really, really very impressive data set. But if your variables are, are badly defined or or you know you you come up with a, the nature of this this kind of statistical analysis is that they will generate significant relationships you know um, but then what does it mean uh, what does the relationship mean uh, we tend to especially in this field but not not only in this field to uh, to do what I what I I not just me I mean there's there's a there's a, a whole literature on that out there um, what what is called conditioning on the data uh, um, we it's hard enough to get any data that when you come across a data source or a data set, uh, you want to use it and ask questions of it and, and just, just put it in the machine and press play and see what comes out, right? Um, but how well does this data set represent reality? You know, how, how, how selective is it? How, how much does it leave out? All that stuff, for me, you can't really... The data doesn't speak for it, doesn't, or don't speak, so data is plural. Yeah. Sorry, for a French person, that's very counterintuitive. Um, I know Kurt Braun <laughs> will be listening now, it's plural, it's plural. It's all yeah, yeah, data don't speak for yeah. themselves, Kurt. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, so, and for me, so if you haven't done the analytical groundwork beforehand, uh, and you haven't uh, really good, um, um, sort of rationale for the questions that you ask, then you won't know what your findings mean, uh, really. So, so I I do spend a lot of time on the less empirical side of things, although I am also interested in that side of things. But, but, but this this is hugely important, and it sort of reminds me of one of our earlier episodes. I was talking to Laura Dugan, and mm -hmm. we were talking about the GTD, the Global Terrorism Database. And it's, it can be so easy to go, okay, we've got the GTD, let's just play with yeah. it here and see what results come out. But she was there. She was saying, and rightly so, you need to know about every iteration of the G GTD. You need to know how we collected it, exactly what our definitions yep. were, before you can understand what your results exactly. are. And this is hugely important. Mm -hmm. I would tell all my students, most important stage is that planning stage. It's getting that designed on, it's defining your, your variables, it's coming to all that before you can go and collect data, before you can go and analyze data. If you get that bit wrong, everything's exactly. going to be wrong. Afterwards. It has very practical implications because mm -hmm. Um, as as engineers know, as philosophers know as well, a, an ill-defined problem is not solvable. Yeah. So if you haven't set your question right at the outset, then everything you do afterwards, no matter how methodologically sophisticated it is, no matter how amazing it is, will actually be useless. And that's why we have to be so open when we're publishing it on exactly how we did this as well, so others can really critically assess that. Yeah. The final piece then that, you, that you've put forward is the McGloin, Sullivan yeah. and Kennedy piece, when crime appears, the role of emergence. Now, emergence is something that we see come up in your in your writings quite yeah. a bit recently. What exactly is emergence? Uh, well, I think the way that I use emergence is slightly different from from. So we're back to our definition problem, really. Um, but then again, just to walk back just a little bit yeah. on what we just said, um, um, 
I, I, I'm thinking about this because I gave this lecture to my undergrad students yesterday. <laughs> so it's still on my mind because I'm going to give it to the postgrad students tomorrow. Oh, very good. Um, but the, you know, the, def the defin inevitable definition uh, lecture, how do we define terrorism? How do we define radicalization? Um, and, and this idea that we have to all agree on what it means or that it's this huge problem that there's no consensual. Uh, uh, but science is not is not consensual right mm. uh i mean you we don't it, it it's better if it is obviously if we all agree that we're studying the same thing it really helps but mostly it's conventional so what it requires is that i tell you what i mean by the word when i'm when i'm using it so i have a, a definition of terrorism and radicalization in my work that is extremely criminological and extremely specific um you may very well use a different one, but as long as you're clear on what it is that I'm talking about. So in the emergence uh, example, uh, they I think in the book they use emergence in a more uh, traditional sense of, you know, something that is more than the sum of the parts, uh, an effect that is more than, than, than the sum of the effects of each part taken. Well, this is not a very good definition, but you get the idea. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, um, and when I talk about emergence, I, I'm interested... So still looking at things from the perspectives of an environment of the environment, I am, I'm like like you mentioned when you when you introduced my work at the beginning, I'm interested in where mm -hmm. radicalization happens. I got very quickly deeply bored with the why, yeah. mostly because I think people don't know <laughs> why. Even like when I read the inter interviews with terrorists or when the, the few times I've done interviews myself, um, the why question is isn't that terribly helpful. Um, so I'm interested in where also, because if you have knowledge of the where, it becomes a lot more obvious what you could do, right, based on that knowledge. Because even if you have knowledge of the why, like I, I'm deeply admirative of the, the work that is done, you know, by uh, Scott Atrian on the devoted actors or by uh, um, Kruglansky with the, you know, quest for significance. But I, then I'm wondering how we operationalize this and what do we do with it, you know? And it seems to me that, that also those those um, theories, uh, which again intuitively I, I believe there's something there. It makes sense to me, uh, but I think they um, predict too much radicalization um, and too much terrorism. And if 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 it, if that was all there was, if uh, there would be more. Mm -hmm. It's my sense. I, I may be incorrect, but just based from a theoretical perspective. So my thinking is then, then what else is happening? So I, I agree in the sense that I think of susceptibility and vulnerability as things that we talk about a lot in the literature that are usually very badly defined. Like people use these words without really saying what it is that they mean by them, um, especially in the context of you know vulnerability to radicalization. The government then picks up on it and starts using it, and you're like, well, what what does it mean? Um, but I think of those things as fa fairly general, as, uh, as as things that might might be the case for quite a lot of people at any given time in a society. And if that's if that was the key ingredient, we would have a much bigger problem than than we have, right? Um, and that's where I guess the epidemiology comes in, because imagine that you have you know at any given time in a in a population, most people are susceptible to the flu, right? Uh, and then whether we have an epidemic or just the odd 
you know, case depends on on the sites where the flu is found or, you know, the what strain it is this year or where the routines of the people or whatever. You know, the odds of me catching Ebola if I stay in London are very, fairly small. But my susceptibility to Ebola is probably exactly the same as everybody else on Earth, right? So it's the where where I'm going to go, why I'm going to go there. That's going to make the difference. So that's that's the sort of thing that I'm that I'm interested in. So when I I, I I think about emergence, I'm interested in why particular settings and and I guess you would define a setting by the the, the social physical environment that you can perceive through your senses at any given time. But let's say for us this room right now where we're conducting the interview, right? That's the setting of of our behavior at the moment. Um, I'm interested in why settings where radicalization happens so radicalizing settings how do they appear and why do they stay where they appear um uh, they're not randomly distributed we we talk about you know communities where there you find more of them at certain times uh you talk about country entire countries where you know there's more of their settings at certain times so what are the mechanisms what are the processes that explain why those settings just suddenly emerge and then are allowed to stay there. Um, so that that's the kind of, of stuff I think about when I think about emergence. And what exactly was it that uh, McGloin and colleagues? What was their research? Well, it's a it's a it's an edited book. Yeah. So yeah. there's there's a whole bunch of of, uh, of things in there, but they are talking about 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 emergence in the context of crime uh, as well. But they're not they're they're talking also more broadly about. Um, about the interaction uh, between uh, person and environment. You know, what are the mechanisms that link the two together, which is also something uh, I'm interested in. And I guess, I guess you could, because I did, <laughs> didn't give, a, like I said, I realized afterwards, none of those papers are related, are actually terrorism papers. But if you think about probably a paper that a lot of people will know is the, um, I'm, I'm going to massacre her name, Anya Dalgard-Nielsen. Mm-hmm her paper on uh, what we don't know about radicalization in Europe, right? And in it, she talks about um, uh, the three sort of broad ways that we have to think about been studying radicalization. So the the sort of statistical empirical way, which looks mostly at risk factors and, and that sort of stuff, the the um, the social network bit in the uh, in the middle, and then the French sociological tradition um, that that looks at broader factors. Uh, and she says, I, I believe, if I remember correctly, she says in the paper, uh, each of those explain something, but none of them seem to explain everything. Um, and uh, and this book sort of makes the same sort of case. Um, and there and and there's been all several other papers in in criminology that that say that that say you know we have mainstream criminological theories some that focus more on people some that focus more on places some some that focus more on broader societal mechanisms all of them seem to capture a little bit of something uh, explain part of the variance if you want to be more technical in 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 the terms that you use um, but none of them seem to explain a huge amount of the variance so. So this book sort of also talks about how do you bring all of that together? Um, 
uh, and that's uh, I guess when we move to discussing uh, more my own publications that's uh, in that that first piece that I gave you uh, that was um, commissioned by the Home Office yeah. that's that's what we try to do so how do you bring all those levels of explanation together so let's talk about that piece and uh, this was done with your with yeah. your supervisor from Cambridge yeah um, what what was the you you mentioned briefly there the aim of of the research we're we're talking about the piece Al Qaeda influenced radicalization and as always if you want to engage with any of the research we talk about here please go to the UEL Turk website and you'll have links to these uh, to these pieces that we're we're talking about both Noemi's own pieces and the pieces that that influenced her as well but this piece called Al Qaeda influenced radicalization. Uh, commissioned by the Home Office. So what was it that you were aiming to, to achieve with this piece and what were your overall findings? There? Well, um, so the so, so this was prior to the revision of the prevent strategy, which I believe was 2011. So the piece was commissioned during 2010. Uh, or at least that's that's when we did we did the research. And the Home Office put out this call um, saying, you know, we want someone to do a kind of systematic review, what they call rapid evidence assessment. Rapid evidence assessment is what they call it when they want you to do a systematic review, but they want, don't want to give you enough time and money to do it. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, in the word rapid. Uh, so, so they wanted to commission a rapid evidence assessment of, of everything that had been done. Um, uh, at the time on what they called back then Al-Qaeda influenced radicalization. So it wasn't Islamic influenced terrorism, but it's kind of like same same difference. Um, and so they put out this call uh, and and I wrote back and they said so. So they said, we want you to synthesize all the risk factors and protective factors that have been found in the empirical literature. Mm -hmm. And I wrote back saying, yeah, I think this is a great idea, except I don't want to do it this way. I think that risk factors are not really the way to approach this. So again, drawing from criminology where um, you have, uh, they have a lot more data over there, right? Uh, they've had a lot more years to, to study this and they've generated encyclopedia worths worth lists of correlates mm -hmm. that are either risk factors or protective factors that correlate with crime mm -hmm. and criminality uh and and so so there there has been a lot of writing including from uh professor Wickstrom in cambridge about about the limitations of this risk factor approach and again what we were talking about before you find the exact same papers in epidemiology um and i'm sure in other disciplines that i don't that i haven't thought to look at yet um, where where they realized that the problem with the risk factors is that the 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 statistical analysis that yields them doesn't tell you what they mean because mm -hmm. the factors could be you know uh, a cause if you're lucky right uh, but they could also be a symptom of what you're studying uh, in which case you know everybody knows that you can treat symptoms and makes it makes people feel a little bit better but it doesn't it doesn't solve your problem. It doesn't cure your disease, right? Um, or they could be markers. Markers are indicators that are correlated with the cause, but not the cause itself. Or because our data are so bad, they could be completely irrelevant, right? So you could be accidentally finding something that looks statistically significant, but in fact is completely irrelevant due to the, the bad data that you have. 
so so the way that that we wanted to address this was to say well we can synthesize the what the observations because to be honest back then if you look at the list of papers that this is based on the methodological quality is appalling so uh, when we had to you know normally in a, in, a, in a, an exercise like this you would have a, a methodological threshold at which you don't consider papers right if we'd done that we would have considered nothing and i would have returned a blank page to the home office so there's a caveat that i says, don't think they would have liked that no <laughs> they wouldn't have given me the money for sure um so so there's a caveat in there that says you know you have to take into account that the the methodological threshold things have improved incredibly in the last five, six years in terms of the quality of, of the empirical stuff that's being put out. I mean, it's quite amazing when you compare. If we did this again now, it would be a quite different piece of work. But back then, the, our point was, you know, if you have poor data, which, which we did back then, you need to have very, very good theory. <laughs> you need to have very robust theory. Um, and so, so what we tried to do was to and synthesize as much as possible based on, on the few empirical studies that were available, uh, what the recurrent observations were. So, you know, I, I don't know, I'm making this up, but, you know, it's mainly young people, it's mm. mainly men, it's, it's mainly people who have gone through uh, uh, triggering events in their lives, et cetera, et cetera. And then organize those observations uh, in, in, in different levels of analysis mm. in order to produce a model of radicalization. Um, often models, I mean, we all, you know, models is also a word that could mean everything and absolutely nothing. And if you talk to a statistician, I mean, I have in the beginning when I moved here, because I'm in an engineering faculty. So imagine being a criminologist in an engineering faculty. Um, um, you, you know, in the beginning, people would say, so you have a model of radicalization, show it to us. And I would show them, you know, very pleased with my boxes and my arrows that showed you know um and they were like no that's that's not a model <laughs> that's not what we call a model here where the grown-ups are you know <laughs> this is this is yeah um so so in thinking about modeling or or theorizing or explaining i've been really influenced by being surrounded by engineers um and more um more scientifically orient orientated people. Um, and what strikes me now when I look at models in our field or even other areas of social science is that you you often have you know little boxes that say um, um, individual factors, um, um, I don't know, personal history, mm -hmm. triggering factors, blah, and then you have something about networks and then, mm -hmm. and then you have an arrow or several arrows that go one box to the other box and together that forms a, I don't know, a model of radicalization, a model of terrorist engagement, involvement. No one ever explains the arrow. Uh, yeah. And for me, the key part of any <laughs> explanation is, is the arrow. Because the, the thing that's in the box, if you like, often will be just an indicator. Mm -hmm. Because of the kind of data that, that we have, we, we're not at the stage where we can really say this is a cause, this is, you know. But it will be... So to go back to the term risk factors, which people use a lot, 
the risk factors are unlikely to be stable. Mm -hmm. And indeed, if you look at some of the work we've done with the Prime Project, um, that it will be coming out soon, some of it has come out already, um, on, on loan actors, or if you look at the, um, the NIJ project uh, that John Horgan and, and, and uh, Paul Gill were uh, leading on um, comparing different kinds of, uh, of loan uh, offenders. Um, we've looked in different ways at those, those typical indicators like age and history and, and so forth, and they're not stable. You know, they change over time. So if you look before, after the internet, they look different. If you look across uh, ideological context, they look different. Uh, if you look across geographical context, they look different. So they are not stable. So as risk factors, as predictors of risk or things you would want to tweak to reduce the risk, it's not ideal if they are not, <laughs> if they're not stable, if they yeah. change all the time. But the thing that won't change is the arrow is the thing that explains how one say how the uh, the, the the factors at the individual level uh, interact what with the factors as say the situational level so what this work was trying to do is try to articulate what what those arrows could be yeah what the mechanisms could be that link persons to place what would explain that if many people appear to have uh, um, factors of susceptibility in their background, and yet so few end up involved. Mm -hmm. What is it that explains that? Um, so we're looking at things like selection, mm -hmm. uh, exposure, and so forth, emergence. And you, you see, you see in both of these, uh, in both of these projects, the the Home Office paper that you you put forward, your rapid evidence assessment, as well as this Prime project that you're we're going to lead on to now. We see that influence from your Cambridge days of situational action theory yeah. uh, coming in. Mm -hmm. We see the influence that that has on the arrows yes. as well. So this was, you've come from your criminological background, you've got this introduction to situational action theory, and now you're applying it to terrorism. Um, how did you how did you find then that it did fit? After all that that time thinking this will fit, when you go and try and and fit it in. Do you, how did it how did it fit in these two projects? Then? Well, I uh, I guess at the time when I started, um, the how can I explain this without explaining the whole of SAT mm. right uh, situational action theory? But we can have that as a special. Podcast. Yeah, we can have it have it as, as an add on. Mm. Um, um, so situational action theory explains uh, crime, why people commit crimes. So it has situational in the name because originally uh, the, the theory focused on the situational element of, you know, the act of crime at the moment of crime, what is going on that, that, um, that, that acts upon people so that they commit a crime or they don't. Um, and like I said, I'm, I was more interested in the developmental part mm -hmm. Um, um, of of the whole process, which at the time hadn't been fully developed, because you know it's a huge theory. So so uh, Pio Pearl of Extreme uh, started with the end bit, mm -hmm. the last bit you want to explain, which is why the crime happened, and then you work your way back, yeah. which I think is probably the best way to develop a theory. You mm -hmm. you start from the outcome, and then you work your way up towards the cause. But sometimes we do it the other way around. Um, so, so I kind of took, 
took his proto ideas about the developmental part of how people acquire propensity um, uh, and and applied it to thinking about radicalization. And I think I ended up focusing on some things that that at the time were perhaps of, of less uh, interest to him uh, uh, on the selection uh, issue that I'm that I'm talking about. So so I think I developed that part a bit more, and uh, and it led me back to thinking about profiling, mm-hmm. but a different kind of profiling that I was talking about for my PhD. So not I'm not talking crime scene profiling. I'm talking profiles. Uh, in terms of, um, you know, when we think of a terrorist profile, how come we don't have a terrorist profile? Um, I think people tell you um, uh, that they no longer believe that we'll ever find one. Uh, especially practitioners have, you know, often will tell you, don't worry, we no longer count on you to find us a terrorist profile. It's like, oh, what a relief. Yeah. Um, but I think people are still looking for why there isn't one, okay. you know? Intuitively, they think there should be a kind of a person that is more likely to be a terrorist than another person. I don't know why some kind of cognitive bias in humans that we think we should there should be a completely different kind of person uh, involved. Um, and I think it helps if you can provide an explanation for why we're not finding the profiles. Mm-hmm. So I ended up focusing uh, uh, more on um, on what. Like I said in the beginning, you know, there's nothing more practical than a good theory um, on what the theory could explain practically mm-hmm. and the practical, very practical issue of what we're, why we're not finding uh, any profiles. Um, and, and I think selection explains this, because if you think about um, where radicalization happens, so I'm going to make things very simple, right, because for, for the purpose of... of of me. Of you. <laughs> For the purpose of explanation, let's, let's stay simple. But um, if you think about, let's say, I always take this example with my students. Let's say in this particular city, there's only one radicalizing agent, only one guy who's trying to, you know, get people over to thinking that terrorism is a great idea. Uh, and this guy also happens to be a fan of Liverpool, the football team. Um, and and so he spends a lot of time in pubs where you can watch the Liverpool games, right? And that's where he does most of his radicalizing activity because that's where he spends most of his time. So he does this and he's remote, a little bit successful. Um, but that means that the next terrorist campaign, next time there's, you know, uh, attacks and people are arrested, most of them turn out to be fans of Liverpool. So you can imagine the press going crazy, being a fan of Liverpool is a cause of terrorism or is a is a risk factor for sus- for susceptibility to radicalization. Um, and then, you know, the security services hear about this and they do their job properly. And so does the police. And the guy realizes that he can't keep doing the work and because everybody's watching the, the pubs where or all the places where Liverpool fans congregate. So he moves to another place where he thinks no one's going to look for him. And that's pubs where people support. Give me another football team. Uh, Everton might be there. Everton, <laughs> right. Yeah. Everton. Uh, and so next terrorist campaign, everybody is a fan of Everton. And so the profile has changed. Yeah. Um, so this is a very, very obviously basic illustration of, of the fact that the where um, and the selection process. So people, why do people go anywhere? Mm-hmm. They go there because they think they'll find something they like or want to do there. That's Mm. self-selection, right? They have desires that they think they can fulfill in that place. Or 
they go because of of the kind of person they are. So, you know, rich people tend to spend time in certain places where you and I will never go until we win the lottery, right? Um, uh, people of a certain ethnicity. Or until we leave academia. <laughs> that too. Uh, or people of a certain ethnicity or certain religion or etc. end up, it's not deterministic, obviously, it's probabilistic, but, yeah. but it matters for why you spend time anywhere. Yeah. So those selection processes, which is the kind of things that I'm studying with the Minerva project, um, combine with the where the radicalizing settings have, have emerged, um, sort of makes it more or less likely, and we're back to epidemiology, that certain kinds of people at certain times will be exposed to, in this case, your radicalizing ideology. So you would expect the profiles to change. Yeah. The, the, the theory predicts that they will. Um, and if you had perfect intelligence on where radicalization is occurring, mm -hmm. then you would, in a way, have a way to profile, mm -hmm. to, to say, you know, the next, next round of terrorists will have those characteristics yeah. or be likely to have those characteristics. And these, this example that you're bringing up reminds me there's a line in your Home Office report. It's, it's saying that the aim isn't to find out what is known, it's about finding out what matters from what is known. Exactly, well. and yeah. That sums yeah. it up brilliantly. I because think. I feel... Uh, because I've seen this happen in criminology, um, that now that we have more and more data mm -hmm. in our field, this is great. This yeah. is really good. I'm certainly not going to complain about that. But what's going to happen is that which new, each new data set, a whole bunch of new indicators are going to come up. Mm -hmm. um, and we won't, we will end up having, the list will be growing and growing and growing. But at some point, we're going to have to ask, out of this 1,000 indicators that are correlated with involvement in the terrorist group or radicalization what matters you know exactly and that's the important thing because now. you can't you can't use all of them for risk assessment you can't tweak all of them if you are trying more interested in prevention and disruption you're going to have to prioritize you're yeah. going to have to decide which ones matter yeah. and how you're going to do that that's the tricky bit, and one of the, that's one of the, the the things that you have to grapple with with the Prime project as well. Yeah. Because the the next piece that you put forward was a risk analysis framework. Yeah. Uh, from the Prime project. Before we get onto the risk analysis framework itself, could you give our listeners just a brief overview of what uh, the Prime project was and what were what was involved with it? Okay, so the Prime project was um, uh, on lone actor terrorism. Mm -hmm. So, but looking, so we split up uh, the the lone actor event into three phases of radicalization. So, how how does someone come to see terrorism as a possibility? Attack planning and preparation, and the actual attack, um, and and. What I, I was interested in was moving beyond the risk factor approach um, and moving and um, questioning, if you like, uh, the typologies mm -hmm. that were in use. Uh, and the, I'm not a big fan of the typological approach in the first place. Um, um, I think you, you have this um, temptation once you've put something in a box and you said, this is a lone actor, this is a group actor. People have all sorts of, of, of classification systems to explain how related or degrees of relation between an actor and a group and so forth. Um, 
you have a tendency to think that once you've put them in the box, you've explained the problem, but you haven't really just put them in a box, right? Uh, and, and you're never really sure that your box is the most relevant box there could have been, you know? Mm -hmm. um, um, and so, so this, this project wanted to um, um, take some inspiration from things that were being done. And again, this is my exposure to engineering, uh, other ways of analyzing things that were not statistical mm -hmm. and that were more about uh, sequencing either indicators or behaviors um, and taking inspiration very, very rough inspiration from the crime scripting approach yeah. in criminology. Um, uh, so crime scripts in criminology are, are more an, an idea than an actual method. Uh, there isn't really a, a, a method for how you derive them. So, um, so we looked to different approaches like Bayesian networks, um, state transition diagrams, uh, qualitative uh, um, scripts as well. Mm -hmm. All sorts of ways that we could uh, collect indicators and with the with the understanding that we're calling them indicators because we don't know if they are causes or symptoms or markers and we don't want to suggest. I think risk factors in people's minds suggest cause. Mm -hmm. But I think most of the time they're not yeah. the cause, right? So I'm suggesting just a little flag, mm -hmm. right? So it's it's an indicator, um, and and we wanted a way to to um, to model it in a more dynamic sort of way than the the traditional statistical approach allows you to do. You know what comes first. Uh, uh, if if indicator A comes first, is it more probable that C or D or F or E will follow this 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 sort of thing? Um, so this this um, some of it has been published. Uh, Bart Schurman has uh, first authored a couple of papers that we're all on um, that that um, sort of discusses this both from the aspect of of uh, uh, um, attack planning and preparation. Um, uh, indicators, uh, and then also from questioning the typology in the first place. So the 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 lone wolf type. Yeah. Uh, we try not to use that term, but you know it's it's still very commonly used. Or even as lone actor, um, the we're just basically saying, and, and it's a bit you know when you've received three million euros <laughs> to study lone actors, and one of your main conclusions is that there's no such thing, you yeah. might think you, you know, but I seem to specialize in, in writing things that show things don't work. <laughs> um, so I'm just gonna have to come to terms with that. <laughs> it's gonna be the rest of my career. Um, so uh, after, you know, after saying that there's no such thing as profiling, that there's no such thing as lone actors. Yeah. Um, um, but, you know, once you 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 study things in 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 a more sort of dynamic way, um, not just you know listing indicators, storing them in the computer, pressing play, uh, you you end up questioning a lot of common assumptions. And one of them was you know are they really alone? Well, no, actually they're not. They're not all that alone uh, mm -hmm. throughout the event. Mm -hmm. And one of the things, one of the the outputs that you've got in this piece is, I. It's a, we can we can spend our time writing these long long pieces and go into mm. in depth analysis on these theoretical backgrounds, but a lot of the practitioners there. Okay, yeah. just give me one page here, I and don't. you've given them one page. You've given them a risk analysis matrix here. Yeah, 
how, could you tell us about what's involved in this? We, we see this broken up across the phases of the event where we're looking at radicalization, attack, preparation and attack. And within that, the levels of analysis, be it the individual, situational, social ecology or so, social ecological or systematic as well. Um, how do you see that being applied or what, what, what caveats would you give to this? What warnings would you give to anyone who's just taken this page and going, OK, right. I'm going to look at So this. I would say this is an analytical framework, not a tool. Yeah. So that is also something that I've I've learned after 10 years here mm. is I. I'm I'm much more aware now of the distinction between what I would call fundamental science, applied science, engineering, mm. technology, implementation, evaluation, mm. um, all those things. And if we were in a in a field where we were actually building something, mm. you know, like I don't know, aircraft carriers or you know whatever, we would be very aware of the different layers of knowledge, and that you don't go from I don't know laws of physics to aircraft carrier in one step yeah. right and i and i feel that because we're dealing with a social political problem because there's uh, all sorts of uh, uh policy pressures and mm-hmm. and because also when you're dealing with a social political problem everybody has an opinion on yeah. on it you know even though they've never studied it for like a minute they they have an opinion on it and they'll we, tell you why you're wrong. Yeah, we have a tendency to want to go straight from the fundamental science to the mm. solution. I am not claiming that at all. Mm. Um, and this analytical framework is still at the level of fundamental science. Uh, but I want, I, I conceive of it as a guide to thinking about what matters, mm-hmm. right? And why it matters. So this sort of tries to outline the key causal mechanisms um, and and in in a way I want to tell people to just commit and if they think something is a cause just call it a cause and if you're wrong then you're wrong but then we know what we've learned we've learned that this wasn't a cause you know because if you don't actually commit and you treat all factors or indicators at the same level um, you you never learn when you're wrong, uh, and you you find very quickly that you don't know how to inform people who have to make decisions about designing interventions. Because mm-hmm. at the end of the day, you know that's that's where we want to get. Yeah. Um, uh, but at the same time, still be aware of when your research is still fundamental science. So, I still and I'm applying for five more years of money yeah. <laughs> to to the EU Brexit uh, allowing. You know. Mm-hmm. You might have to go back to France uh, to get I that. I may no. have yeah. to go um, to develop this into an actual technology. So, you know, so you have the fundamental science, then you're supposed to have, as every other technological field would know, an R&D process before you actually have some kind of technology. At, but there's a the temptation to just take this and then use it. But that's, that's not really how it works. So I'm not claiming that it's a tool, uh, but it is... It is an, a, a sort of way of trying to organize what matters and why does it matter. It, it might be helpful, say, for uh, for people who, are f- who have to evaluate uh, indicators or risk factors in, in some actual practical setting, mm-hmm. and they have to guess mm-hmm. what matters. 
it's I feel like it's probably better to have some foundations on which to guess than just guess. Yeah. Um, so it's better than, than nothing, but it's certainly not a finished product. Yeah. And we're talking here about some, some people who would uh, have to to really decide who's at risk and when yeah. someone is at risk. And you're along with uh, Amy Thornton, then it's that leads us to our final piece. Some of the people here in the UK who have to do this are involved uh, with the channel program. Yeah. Um, and your final piece that we're looking at is preventing radicalization in the UK, expanding the knowledge base on the channel program. As I said, co-authored with Amy Thornton, uh, also from UCL. For, we've got, luckily we've got an international audience who listen to this podcast here. Um, so not everyone will be aware of what the channel program is. Just briefly, what is the channel program before we get into what you found in this, in this piece? The channel program is probably one of the most high profile part of the prevent um, UK strategy. Um, I'm assuming most people are are familiar with prevent, but it's it's basically the the strategy that deals with countering radicalization mm-hmm. in the UK. And the channel program is uh, an initiative that is run mostly at the local authority level. Mm-hmm. Uh, which aims to identify through uh, a referral, a process of referral, uh, people who might be susceptible to radicalization. So people in the community who there's some concerns, so uh, a teacher, uh, a social worker, uh, maybe even a medical NHS person, medical doctor, uh, would 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 flag this and say, you know, I'm, I have concerns here mm-hmm. that this person uh, is at risk. Of, of going down the radicalization uh, road. Um, and this program is, uh, is it's hard to talk about the channel program because actually there's channels, yeah. you know, depending yeah. on where you look, they're organized differently. But roughly speaking, there's a panel to which the, 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 the cases that are referred uh, go to. Uh, and the panel assesses in the first instance whether you know there's actually a, a problem here, mm-hmm. uh, and then if they assess that that's the case, they design a, a package, mm-hmm. uh, an intervention package, if you like, which is supposed to be customed, uh, customized to each case, um, addressing the vulnerability uh, aspects of of the person's life. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a voluntary program, so only people who uh, who accept uh, to to you know uh, basically take on this package of intervention um, will be part of it. So they don't. There's nothing that that forces people to um, to accept the, the the intervention of the channel program. And um, when yourself and Amy were looking into into the channel program, what way did you approach this, and what exactly were you trying to find? Here? So it's part of a much it's part of the work that amy did for her phd um, dissertation and what she was doing was taking the 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 model that i that i've been talking about uh, of radicalization which for short i call iv because it's individual vulnerability exposure emergence um and she was using agent-based modeling to using sort of the arrows of IV, if you like, to create a simulation and and work out uh, under what conditions radicalizing settings might emerge in a community. Obviously, doing that in in real life is very hard. Yeah. Um, so we were using a simulation uh, technique to to look at this, uh, start to explore 
what might be uh, significant things like uh, uh, levels of collective efficacy, uh, residential segregation, those, those sort of things, um, which I'll also, I'm borrowing from criminology for lack of, of, of literature on this really in the terrorism area. Um, and as part of that work, she had to collect data to validate the simulation. Um, and part of that uh, required talking to people who were dealing with radicalization in the community settings and a subset of those people ended up being people who who work uh, as part of the channel uh, program is there intervention providers um, what was it that when when Amy and yourself talked to these people um, what was it that you were finding what what, um, what were they saying well what were the key themes coming up um, there's there's some of it, so we asked them to consider both the strengths mm. and the weaknesses of 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 channel. Um, uh, there's there's what they said and what what came out as interesting to us. I mean, you know, yeah. obviously there's you always do that, in, especially in qualitative analysis. Yeah. Um, what was particularly interesting to me was the issue of vulnerability, um, because a lot of the a lot of of the program hinges on this idea that you are able to spot it. Mm-hmm. You know that you. So, and they have their own risk analysis framework, right? Uh, their own way of scoring, more or less, uh, someone to, to say, yes, there, there's, there's risk uh, here. And they were talking a lot about the threshold. Mm-hmm. Um, um, in, some casings, uh, in some cases, saying the threshold was too low. So by which they meant um, uh, that uh, too many people were being referred or it was too high by which they meant uh, by the time they got to the people it was already too late um, so channel is really intended to intervene before radicalization has occurred uh, and and it's really very quite hard mm-hmm. to to capture uh, in some systematic way I mean you know I've uh, this is an issue like I've done some research in prisons as well and, and prison guards have told me the same thing. We know we are being asked to spot radicalization. How do we do that? You know, it's just like I, I now I'm involved here at UCL with, um, you know, I mean, for again, for our international audience, um, prevent also includes um, a, a duty now for institutions like universities to to refer uh, persons of concern uh, among student and staff population. And this has been quite controversial. It's been really controversial. Uh, And what we've been saying with this paper is that, you know, you're asking people to trust that, that, that this process of referring someone will not have a detrimental effect on their lives, right? Mm -hmm. This is actually a quite huge decision when you when you think about this. Um, But there's very little knowledge of what happens after the referral has been made. So that's also part of why we were we wanted to look at channel uh, and it's been most of what's out there is, you know, the numbers of people referred some very basic information, but nothing people don't really know what this entails. Yeah. Uh, and it's and it's been very hard to. So, I mean, you know, there's like what, six inter- six in-depth interviews in this paper. It's not much, but it's still more than was available at the time when we did it, you know. Yeah. Um, so so part of uh, what they're talking about, they're talking about the fr- threshold. What interests me the most is this idea of vulnerability. Mm-hmm. 
what is it exactly? How do you spot it? Uh, going back to risk assessment, you know, how do you see vulnerability? And how do you capture it? Um, um, and they're talking about, you know, the, the the kind of credentials that people have to deliver interventions yeah. or don't have, as the case may be, and who delivers those credentials and what makes you equipped to do this. And they, they seem to be quite distrustful of, of other people. This this data was was collected three years ago, so yeah. you, know, you have to take that into account, obviously. Yeah. That was the thing that really caught my eye, actually, is when they were questioning uh, the competency of the providers. Yeah. Um, and they were outright saying, okay, what kind of person would say, I'm going to be a provider? And they're saying, well, it's people who have these theological uh, viewpoints that they want to, to yeah. impose in a way. Mm. And it's um, talking about the agendas that people had there. It's not, it wasn't a section of the, the paper that would make people go, oh yeah, I've got great faith in this now as well. It's, uh, it, did, it did raise concerns. And it's similarly the, the point you're raising about who gets referred and some of them and as you said it was a it was a small sample but it's still it's still worth listening to um some talking about some people who referred who shouldn't have been referred to this at all it was mental health issues that were yeah. more uh, that was what was what was being dealt should have been dealt with there um it's with these concerns in place and as you said it, this, these entries were done a few years ago um do you think that like what needed to be changed or and what have you seen uh, if you have seen anything that has been changed with these in mind in terms of uh, of the way that channel operates and in the way that or the way the channels operate and in the way that um providers are selected i haven't i haven't got any updated data mm. so i can't i can't really speak to that what i've noted being involved with it from the side of the university now having to implement and being a, a sort of I've become a sort of advisor um, uh, uh, also a mediator between the student population and uh, and the um, and the university and having to um, sometimes side with I just side is not really the word that I want to use but I can't come up with another one at yeah, the moment yeah. but side with the students who are concerned that the indicators uh, because they're UCL students they're not stupid right so they've mm. done their own research they can read yeah mm. so they are aware that the indicators of radicalization that are used or suggested to be used to the, the scientific knowledge base backing them up is not that strong, right? So mm. so they are legitimately bringing this up, saying, you know, this, is, this isn't great and there's risk of discrimination and all sorts of things. Um, so I, and I don't feel that's really been addressed, but, but there's, because again, the, uh, the, uh, the policy making side cannot wait on the academic or scientific side to, yeah. to they have to do something now. So, so you, you really find yourself in a position where, you know, what's, what's, what's the right thing to do here? <laughs> you know, do we say we scrap the whole thing? Cause the, cause the, the science isn't up to snuff yet. Mm -hmm. Um, or, I mean, would you really say that? And then something happens and then who takes responsibility for having done that? Mm -hmm. At the same time, you completely see the point of view of, of people who might be uh, damaged by, by this kind of policy. Uh, and 
as a scientist sitting in your office, you just, yeah, yeah, whatever. But then when you have, you find yourself in very practical situations. I mean, I've never had to refer a case yeah. myself. I've never, mm. but I, I don't know that I would be very different from a quote unquote normal citizen um, if I had to make. Yeah. I wonder how much my science would help me then. Yeah, I, I, I'd actually talk about this. Uh, it reminds me of uh, two episodes ago. Uh, you wouldn't, uh, you wouldn't have heard it yet, Naomi. But we had a, I had a really interesting discussion with uh, Victor Assal, and we got talking about uh, moral philosophy in in war. Right. Uh, and but you can see similar uh, moral philosophical debates Absolutely. going on there yeah, yeah, in, yeah. in relation to this, and it's it's something that um that yeah it's. It call, you can understand it from all sides and you can understand that there's a problem with the the vulnerability criteria, but there's also a problem that the government needs to deal with and there's all these issues that needs to... Well, in, in philosophy we say you can't make an, derive an ought from an is. So mm. the, the science can tell you what is, mm. or at least it can do its best to try to tell you what is, but it can't tell you what should be. Mm -hmm. That... After that, it's a political decision. It's a social. It's something as that us as a society have to say. You know, this is how we want to act on our, our knowledge of what is, but we can't say what should be. After that, it's just me as a as a as any other citizen who has my own opinions about you know how, how things should be acted upon. And and I think I I see both sides. I mean, I have practitioners as my students. I have students as my students yeah. go too, you know. So so I see I, I'm sympathetic. You end up being sympathetic for to both sides yeah. when you are when you I mean I some of my practitioners I wouldn't want to be I wouldn't want to have their jobs. No. <laughs> really. I wouldn't want and and you see the way that that the government has not just the government really um uh, even even society has reacted to this is by doing what I call moving the goalposts, mm. right? So let's say, okay, the timeline isn't going to be quite right, but let's say before 9-11, around 9-11, we were dealing with terrorism. We were countering terrorism. Uh, then we had the invasion, the various invasions uh, in the Middle East, and that didn't work out so good, right? Uh, and that didn't deliver the, the death of terrorism that we were expecting. And so we moved the goalpost and said, we have to work our way up further up the chain. Mm -hmm. And now we're countering radicalization, right? And then we did that for a few years, and that turned out to be quite a lot harder than we thought it was going to be, especially in terms of you know measuring radicalization and conceiving of it, and and prevent wasn't received quite very positively, especially in its first iterations. So the reaction to that was to move the goalpost even further, and then we're countering extremism, mm -hmm. right? And that hasn't <laughs> been received very positively either. So now where people talk, when they talk about channel, when they talk about prevent, they talk about safeguarding. Mm -hmm. So now it's about safeguarding. Now, the problem with this is one, as I've said before, an ill-defined problem cannot be solved. Yeah. If you keep changing the definition of the problem, me and all my friends who are trying to study this problem for you, we can't keep up. Mm -hmm. Terrorism is not radicalization, is not extremism, is not safeguarding. Those are all separate things, you know. So give us, you know, if you keep moving the goalposts on it, we're never going to score this goal, right? Um, so there's that. Also, this this um, makes a complicated problem, which has 
a complicated problem is a problem that has a lot of moving parts, mm. but it's solvable. You know, as long as you, you have to study, you know, like sending somebody to the moon, that's a complicated problem, but we can do it. It mm. just takes a lot of effort and organization and stuff. Then you have, but what we're dealing with are not complicated problems. They're complex problems. Mm -hmm. And because they're in social systems and they have feedback loops and unintended consequences and you, you know, they're hard to model and that. The problem, I think, is that it's a complex problem. No one wants to deal with a complex problem. So it's been rephrased as a complicated problem that if we throw enough resources at it, we'll sort this out. Yeah. But it, it's not a complicated problem. It's a complex problem. And in the, in, the, in the effort to redefine it all the time to make it what it's not, we're creating a wicked problem. And a wicked problem cannot be solved. Uh, by definition, and a wicked problem occurs when you keep redefining the parameters of the problem and no one can keep up with it. So I'm concerned that that we're turning what is a problem that is complex but could be handled into something that is wicked. Yeah. And this wicked problem, it's, it's yeah, it's... Uh... It's a worrying way to end, to end the podcast. But you, you, you've listened to this podcast uh, before, I know, and I, I think you know what the, the, next, the final question is here. And you intimated towards it uh, in the, when we were discussing the Home Office report. But I always ask uh, at the end, how do you feel the field of terrorism study is now? Um, do you feel it's stagnated? Do you feel that it's a healthier position? or I don't think what? it's stagnating at all. Okay. Um, I'm, uh, but <laughs> I have this weird position where I feel both in it and outside of it. Yeah. Uh, as I've said at the, at the very start, I feel more like a criminologist who happens to be studying terrorism as a kind of crime that I'm interested in mm -hmm. rather than as a terrorism scholar. And there are still whole bits of the terrorism field I feel like probably I'm not doing justice to because I, I'm not keeping up. There's only so many hours in the day, right? And, well, uh, but I think this is part of the problem with, with, with terrorism studies is oftentimes we want to be an expert on everything to do with terrorism. Yeah. Whereas if if we break it down piece by piece and say, I'm going to focus on this element of it, that, there's nothing wrong with that. There's actually a lot more benefits to that than saying, we're going to solve everything here. Even that or, and I'm again, probably not going to be making a lot of friends here, but sometimes I feel my time is better spent reading outside yeah. right like i read a lot in uh the neuroscience of morality mm. in epidemiology as i've said uh, um and, and i feel that's where all my cool ideas are going to go from because mm. i'm going to steal them from somebody who's much smarter than me and then apply them to terrorism and it mm. will sound cool mm. um so I do keep up with the terrorism field, mostly through conferences or mostly through Paul Gale, who yeah. <laughs> just, you know, just tells me what it is that I should know. Uh -huh. um, um, yeah, so, um, but I don't feel, I don't feel the, the, the field is, is uh, stagnating mm -hmm. at all, but I feel like it needs to, I don't see terrorism as a special problem. Okay. I don't see radicalization as a as a special problem it's just radicalization is a kind of socialization mm -hmm. we we know a lot and we will know a lot more about socialization uh it will not have the word terrorism in it mm -hmm. but it will still be relevant mm -hmm. it will at the end of the day all the mechanisms will be general and shared across a whole bunch of problem domains mm -hmm. and as long as we don't put up it's my my fear of boxes mm -hmm. you know, my fear of commitment <laughs> <laughs> uh, as long as we don't put 
put up barriers saying oh, this isn't terrorism studies so let's not look at it we'll be fine and i actually think that there aren't those barriers at the moment that there is a, a huge openness yes to, to i feel so at, as well which areas. is why i'm fairly optimistic yeah. Oh. Well, Noemi, I think that's a nice way to, to finish. Uh, not finish with the wicked problem, but feel with, finish with the optimism. So uh, thank you so much for uh, for being on today's pod. As always, if you want to uh, follow uh, all our work here at Turk, uh, follow us on at T-E-R-C-U-E-L on Twitter. Tweet at us with the hashtag Talking Terror if you want to tell us what you think of this podcast. Only if it's nice, of course. Um, be sure to actually rate us uh, wherever you... Um, you listen to this podcast so we can get it's a better way for us to find more to get more listeners and to be sure to tune in next week where i'll be talking to petter nesser about his research but once again thank you so much noemi and we'll talk to you all soon bye